0: Welcome to a live recording of the On Meaningful Work podcast. And before I start, I just want to say how weird and wonderful it is to say that in front of a group of people. Usually when I do these introductions, I'm alone at home staring at a blank wall. So this is really uh, a treat. Uh, but before we dive in, the On Meaningful Work podcast, in, usually it is about tracing the journeys of people that I think have found true purpose and meaning in, uh, in the work that they do. Uh, but in, in this case, it's a little bit different in that we are tracing a literal journey with, with uh, Augustine. Uh, and before we bring him on, uh, let, me, let, me, let me read out a brief bio. So, as an architect and academic, Dr. Augustine Chavez has dedicated his career to understanding the notion of work and uncovering environments that best support our working lives. Augustine's interest in the relationship between people, space, and technology saw him pursue a PhD on the evolution of workplace architecture as a consequence of technology development. His work has been presented at various international forums and publications. He is a workplace consultant and adjunct research fellow at the Center of Design and Innovation at Swinburne University, and an honorary fellow at the School of Management and Marketing at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I'm going to call you Gus, if that's all right. Please. Gus, <laughs> welcome to the On Meaningful Work Thank podcast. Thank you all,
1: and thanks everyone <laughs> for being here.
0: Um, so b- b- before we start, before we get into the book, and, and your book traces your journey, that this crazy journey that you went on, and there are a number of signposts, but if I could kind of ask you a personal question, like as you were maybe as an adolescent or a young person. What were the signposts in your life that led you to being an architect?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Just to contextualize the idea of a signpost. So um, I came up with lessons in the book that to continue with the analogy of walking and pilgrimage, I call them signposts. Uh, we'll discuss why in a minute. But mm-hmm. so these signposts are like lessons that point to some something. And when I was writing the book, um, I was a bit hesitant of using signposts because They give us the belief that as we go through life, we see signposts that tell us where to go, and that's not the case. Um, We'll discuss a bit later, but the signposts, the lessons, took me years. Uh, the, The walk from Melbourne to Sydney took 42 days. We're gonna get into that a little bit later. But to digest what came out of it literally took years. So the idea that we have these signs as we go through life uh, that tells where to go can be a bit misleading. Signposts, in my opinion, seem to happen always uh, retrospectively. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have any signposts that led me to go do architecture. I just had a pleasure talking to an architecture student, uh, just graduated recently. And, uh, and in my case, I must admit, I have not an inner passion to become an architect. Mm-hmm. I was the, um, it was something that interests me, but I grew to to love it with a passion that now led me to do this crazy thing with a very uh, interesting story around um, X-ray machines. Mm-hmm. So I was already here, I studied architecture in Mexico, again, a little bit by inertia. I went, I have a gap year in Paris um, where I had the opportunity to be engaged with architecture, With our desire of making life beautiful ourselves through fashion, cuisine, architecture. So perhaps that influenced me to go to the mainstream type of architecture to beautify the world. then mm-hmm. um, came here long story, but um, I needed to do my registration as an architect. So I work for a, um, a project in a project in a health project halfway through the process the client changed an x-ray machine from analog, you know, the old school ones that you have the x-ray, and to digital. Mm-hmm. And that created so many changes in, in the building. Uh, we needed to get rid of so many viewing boxes, and, and we were behind the eight ball trying to uh, you know, follow that change. We were so busy working on the delivery of the hospital and making those changes that we didn't have time to think about how that change changed the interaction of people with their environment mm-hmm. and with each other. So I was more worried about that than responding an RFI to the builder or something like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I realized that to think about architecture, uh, you cannot work in architecture mm-hmm. and vice versa. So I, that's when I wanted to take some time for Doing architecture to think about architecture. So my passion, really, about architecture, mm-hmm. started with an X-ray machine and how mm-hmm. we interact with space and with each other.
0: So, so then, just following from that, this is perhaps a basic question. But then, what is architecture? Is it just, is it just about making making buildings beautiful, or is it? Well, no, and
1: that's something I talk about the book, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps. And this is from. Uh, uh, the CEO of IDO, that says that design in general has come to become a downstream discipline in which the role is to beautify an idea that someone else had. Mm-hmm. How I see the biggest opportunity for designers is that they conceive themselves or they're part of designing that idea. So one of the signposts that I talk about in the book is design work first, mm-hmm. then the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, If we do that, we have the potential to unleash new value about workplace environments. Mm -hmm. Because by the time the idea of work reaches us as designers, Mm -hmm. is riddled with um, shortcomings. So we have an opportunity to design the notion of work first and then its container Mm -hmm. will be in a better place. So to answer, for me, now I see the the world in a very narrow, singular lens, but very wide, I must say, uh, this: the notion of work. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, architecture, I see it and interpret through work environments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But through that, we can understand what makes us human, and mm-hmm. we're gonna talk about that in a second. But for me, is how to use the space, the physical environment, which changes space into place mm-hmm. with everything that goes into it, to host the, uh, the nature of work.
0: Sure. Uh, a lot to get into there but but let's kind of dial it back and talk about i think firstly talk about the book and how the idea for the book came about and yeah go ahead so the book came about uh to record
1: this uh pilgrimage to sydney which i'll always so so the question
0: is, should be what spawned the idea to do this pilgrimage to sydney yes. yeah mm. so I try to make, uh, clarify always the difference between a
1: walk and a pilgrimage. Mm. And what I did, I want to frame it as a pilgrimage because a walk is what connects you between two points and the pilgrimage is the insights that you get out of that experience. So this book and um, the conversations that we're gonna have today are about what I learned, not the mm. distance that I covered.
0: Can I just ask the, Like usually when you think of the word pilgrimage, it has a strong spiritual or religious connotation to it. Did that come into your frame of thinking?
1: No, mine was a secular one. Mm -hmm. There's many attributes to to a pilgrimage. One is having rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them are to increase the discomfort of the pilgrim itself, Mm -hmm. never to enhance the well-being. We're gonna talk about the type of rules. So I attach Mm -hmm. it through some of the rules and what makes a pilgrimage other than the spiritual aspect. Mm -hmm. But the reason I did it, uh, was not for fundraising, some people ask me, well, why do you do it, You know, and a lot of them think it was... Which charity uh, are you supporting? Which it? charity, yeah. are you? and I talk about yeah. that in the book, uh, if you say I did it for this and that charity, people will immediately understand and give, here's mm. five bucks and good on you and keep going, but I did it for something very weird, I mean, I, I still sometimes find it interesting that I'm actually here saying why I did it in front of people. Um, as, I was traveling a lot between Melbourne and Sydney and we were presenting the research about workplace design. And we were presenting about how to design environments that bring people together to increase collaboration and interaction to each other, right? And on the flight back from that night, late at night, you know, the typical uh, night commute flight, you're all tired, a pack airplane, anyway took out my iPad and start reading. Uh, I was reading a book called The Magic of Reality from uh, Richard Dawkins. And in that, there's a chapter that is about um, why there's so many animals in the planet. So Dawkins was explaining um, uh, Darwin's proposition about why is it that there's so many different animals in, in, in the planet. And he gives the example of the, Islands in the Galapagos Islands, which some of you might know and the argument is that the islands through isolation the physical barriers that the islands presented allow iguanas to evolve completely different through millions of years. So there's the only sea iguana in the world lives Mm -hmm. there because it evolved very very differently from the other ones. And then, as I was reading, I read one paragraph that I have to put the book down and really change my take on, just like the X-ray machine, mm. uh, my take on uh, workplace design. That it says that it was isolation that gave us all the diversity of species that we have come to see. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I put the book down, and I started reflecting, well, I just had a uh, meeting with clients talking about how to give those little iguanas as both Mm -hmm. Uh, to interact with each other, to increase increase, um, innovation. And now I'm hearing that it's actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. So I thought, what if Melbourne and Sydney were in two different islands Mm -hmm. of the Galapagos, and instead of being populated by iguanas, they were populated by ideas? Mm -hmm. And I thought that the ease of travel, what is creating, is a very prolific colony of ideas, we have a lot of them, all multiplying, but all from the same strand. Mm-hmm. There's no diversity. So I thought, well, what will happen if I incubate an idea for the time that it takes me to walk from Melbourne to Sydney? Mm-hmm. In complete isolation with n- no email or SMSing or what do you think about this?
0: Or But also no, no music or podcasts. No, so, so that's yeah. when
1: the, the, the rules come. So the, mm-hmm. the, the I struck to the pilgrimage around having two rules Mm -hmm. and the two rules, one of them was by myself. Mm -hmm. So my backpack Well, I have two backpacks, one in the back here on the front, and was self-sufficient. And I will just send an SMS at night saying I arrived here. So if something happened, you know, around where to look. And the other one is no music, no podcast, no nothing. Uh, so that I could actually incubate uh, the idea with my thoughts, which at the time sounds great, but from the two rules, the second one, without any music or anything, was much more difficult because mm-hmm.
0: you're left with your own thoughts. Mm. And wh- Now I'm no, just going to jump in and say, like, I think what's amazing about that is, like, is I've had plenty of crazy ideas and crazy things I want to do, but like the gap between having the idea and taking action is most of the time infinite. So how did you go about putting this plan into action?
1: Again, so the scale mm. of a pilgrimage is in years. Yeah. It's in years for you to realize what you learn, mm. but as I think it's years in the making. Mm. So for the moment I came across the Iguanas in the Galapagos in that fateful flight back from Sydney, and the moment I put my backpack and start walking were two years Mm. in those two years i actually needed to convince myself uh, that it was worth doing uh, because who does that i mean Mm. (laughs) who who actually walks from melbourne to sydney because they read a book about iguanas in the galapagos islands Mm. and they want to incubate a a unique idea about how to design better workplaces and i I needed to it was very important for me to stick to that narrative for myself Mm -hmm. And, and others, if they asked me to, to be able to justify it like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the problem was, or the good thing was, that at the time, every other, converse, every other conference that you went to was about activity-based working mm-hmm. and uh, open plan office.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, That's, I, I cannot retire. I cannot uh, write my last paper or, or workplace strategy around open plan and activity-based working. Mm. So I wanted to incubate a, a unique idea, mm-hmm. and that's what triggered me. But I was in conflict because mm-hmm. it stands in opposition of what we think is rational.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so so going back to your point earlier, just on you know you walking in isolation without any books or audiobooks or podcasts or any of that, and the thing you mentioned in the book is how boredom really uh affected you and you reading that I, I i had this realization that i can't remember the last time i was properly bored because i'm constantly listening to something or i'm constantly with people or you know or even if i'm alone you know i'm usually watching something or reading something it's like boredom seems to be like this scarce okay. resource almost but one of the signposts was that how we need to cultivate boredom exactly right yeah so
1: I started my walk for mm. the pilgrimage, and you know the first day selfies and uh, this is great and <laughs> wow. Second day, yeah, it's good. Third by third, they starting to get old. Mm. By the fourth, I was bored beyond belief. Mm. Like day in, day out, just looking. I mean, I have some uh, amazing pictures and this and that, but but most of my walks were just looking at pavement and. Listen to traffic, and no stimulus at all. No mm. stimulus, other than just not getting run over by a uh, coming traffic.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, there was nothing. So I really, really struggled with boredom to the point that it was distracting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at what point I thought, you know what, this is ridiculous because I cannot think of how bored I am.
0: In, in, in what way was it distracting? Was it just it, it, the
1: that I cannot literally think? Like, mm. like I, I was. I'm so bored. Like Mm. (laughs) um, I started. Another thing that came out of it Mm. is garbage. I learned a lot about garbage Uh, because as I was coming into towns, Mm. it was almost clean. But I I could tell by the time I was approaching a town, by the time of of, of, um, amount of rubbish, I'll see. Funny enough, I mean, uh, you know, you can make assumptions about how many energy drinks you see and uh, smoking, Mm. pregnant. Pregnancy tests. I mean, who goes? I saw so many pregnancy tests, and I could even forecast wow. the the, the, uh, the demographic uh, growth of the town. Population of the town, of the town. Yeah. yeah. And if uh, uh, gender parties would have been a thing back then, I could not yeah. even tell uh, gender. But but so a lot of them are positive. No, yeah, negative, okay. which should really be a concern. But mm. um, the um, m- the thing is, I start looking at. One thing that clicked is glass, broken glass, and this sounds weird. Be, mm. be with me because some Armative, of these insights, yeah, yeah. you need to be bored for at least 30 <laughs> days to, to get into the zone.
2: Mm.
1: Imagine being in this state and not seeing anything. So I saw broken glass, mm. and my mind immediately, without me trying to do any, anything, tried to bring meaning out of it, tried to mm-hmm. construct and said it's a broken bottle. Mm-hmm. And that... Gave me lead to think how we're meaning. We crave on meaning. We crave on meaning. Mm. meaning even if we don't if we avoid it. We we are hardwired to mm. find patterns, create meaning.
0: Yeah. Um, there was another. I have a great podcast recommendation. Anyway, sorry.
1: <laughs> so mm. um, so so that was a thing trying to find meaning even in discarded things, and mm. I talk about learning from that. So.
0: So going back, so, so just with the broken bottle, like what is the meaning that you uh, that, that you were able to capture from that? Our craving, and,
1: uh, and my brain was satisfied with that. Another mm. one, when I crossed, funny enough, I, I noticed so many difference between Victoria and, uh, and New South Wales. In, uh, Victor- in Victoria, there were more broken bottles. In New South Wales, I found more fishing nets,
2: mm. uh, uh,
1: strings. And again, I will find patterns in discarded, and the one that fascinated me was how long I could walk (laughs) in a string that was completely untangled, uh, and things like that. But perhaps one of the most interesting uh, things I learned is that there's a market for horse poo. I didn't know horse poo. So as I was walking, I saw a sign that says, um, horse poo, two dollars, here in Victoria. Hmm. The moment I crossed to New South Wales, and I have the pictures, hmm. said, horse poo, $3. <laughs> wow. So I have now empirical evidence yeah. that Sydney's more expensive than Victoria.
0: So that sounds like a arbitrage opportunity. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was so bored,
1: <laughs> This is also, I was also bored, that I mm-hmm. started thinking, what if I become a poo merchant? Yeah. Because I can become a millionaire, right? Mm. If I move one million bags of horse poo from one... state to the other. And in my boredom, I thought about the the mental calculations and it will take me 3,000 years Mm. to move 1 million uh, bags of horse poo from uh, Victoria to New South Wales. Mm. But with that came the realization that even though it's very hard to do that, I understood the variables a lot better of how to sell shit. Mm-hmm. Than to how to implement some of the lessons and signposts that mm-hmm. came out of the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. So unless we create a market where ideas can thrive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we cannot make them see them mm-hmm. happen.
0: Sure. So if we stick with boredom for a second, you know, bring all this is boredom. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't changed the topic. <laughs> they, they seem pretty <laughs> interested. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but how can? I, th- I think the, the gist I got from you, from that section of the book was that yeah, boredom is kind of important to for ideas to come together, uh, but bringing that into a work setting could be a bit bit tricky. So absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: Uh, yes, the, the signpost, signpost number six is yeah. uh, boredom um, could be a useful thinking tool. Yes, and certainly. I, yes. I now think boredom is beautiful, mm. which contrasts with the aesthetic that we infuse into workplaces. Mm. Usually, and now with experience design, we try to design experiences by the minute, like, and, mm. and we want to wow and people to feel this and empower and collaboration and the bossiness around the workplace, but we forget that we need the capability to be bored and reach mental states that we usually don't uh, go that often. Mm-hmm. I was giving a talk in the U.S. about this earlier in the year, and a guy, after I spoke, he told me about boredom. and said, well, I can relate to that because there's a study, um, uh, there was a reaction to this study, there was a study that says that people rather electrocute themselves that be left with their own thoughts. So, wow. as I was explaining that, mm. he afterwards approached me and said, Well, when I have a shower, I always leave an earbud in my ear because I like to listen to podcasts or music so as not to be with my own thoughts. Mm. And I have wondered myself if I'm gonna electrocute myself while I'm showering. (laughs) So there's a living case that uh, we actually go through those lens of not being bored. And Mm. even though I'm actually promoting boredom here, it actually can have negative consequences. So I'm not Mm. trying to trivialize it. I'm just just trying to give it a voice, Mm. to reclaim the ability to get bored and to um, learn from the lessons that we derived from that space. Sure.
0: OK, so, so moving back to, I think it was site, signpost one, which is, I think, going back to iguanas and how iguanas evolved because they were in isolation. And uh, you were drawing a causal link from that into how ideas should be able to develop before being shed. Uh, can you? so yeah samples
1: one is um, that we i think we share ideas too early and too often and that gets into the way of the uniqueness of an idea Mm -hmm. and i was uh, very happy that it was a few years later that i decided to make this uh, pilgrimage that researchers at harvard wrote a paper arguing that we should redesign organizations to isolate people between each other's work so that they can produce better ideas because the amount Mm. of interactions that we create is is getting in the way of uh, exchanging ideas. And I'm so happy I didn't know about that paper because if I have read it then, I would have never done this crazy thing. I maybe just have written a paper of what does that mean to workplace design and, and move on. And instead did that and came out back with 34 signposts. Mm-hmm. So there are 34 uh, lessons, not only that. So there's an argument that, yes, perhaps... So, sorry, so,
0: so maybe just to be clear, like the, the signposts we're talking about are really lessons that you came up with during your pilgrimage. No, that
1: but, I mean, those signposts came years after, okay, but yeah. but the le- uh, from the pilgrimage. Yes. Yeah. So again, um, the lessons when I came back, I thought I just wasted 42 days of my <laughs> life, you know. Although mm. they, although I didn't know what I learned, the, the effects were immediate because as soon as I got back to my day job, <clears throat> I um, something didn't feel right, you know. Mm. I didn't know what I've learned, but I know that something has changed, and I realized that the thing that we measured, how many people are in the office who use that room, who doesn't they were important but not sufficient to take us to where these signposts or or the 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 clues of where the signposts were pointing to at that point i didn't know but i realized there was something bigger happening so the one of the first thing i did after coming back from that experience was to look for more meaningful things to measure Mm -hmm. and i came up up across researchers meaning uh, measuring dignity in the workplace And so that was a validated scale Mm -hmm. and our contribution was to to use their instrument of measuring dignity Mm -hmm. and overlap that data with social network mapping. What we're trying to see is to measure ways in which dignity can travel through social networks Mm -hmm. and how the physical environment could help promote that. there was a big change in in my focus of what I uh, started to do and how I started to think about the well, mm-hmm. how I see the workplace. Yeah,
0: so so maybe going back to signpost one, which is about kind of incubating ideas uh, before sharing them. Like that really flies in the face of you know a lot of conventional wisdom. You know, there goes you know your brainstorming sessions, and uh, but but also you know. Thinking back to you know iconic stories of innovation uh, like like Building 20 at MIT is a famous example where it was a hastily constructed building during World War II and you know everyone who did not fit into the usual structure of MIT was shoved into there and so there was no kind of academic strictures within that building so so these people allowed to s- share ideas and then all these innovations started to come out from that building like you know. Noam Chomsky's linguistics and both speakers and all of this stuff, you know. So how do you, how do you counter that with, you know, like sharing ideas seems to generate innovation as opposed to incubating ideas? Signpost
1: 5. Oh, OK. Here we go. <laughs> Tell us that um, there has to be a sweet spot between isolation of idea and ourselves. Because also, let's put aside, Let's talk about isolation first. Um, Mm -hmm. So the condition of being by oneself, aloneness, um, can manifest as solitude and and isolation. So isolation is actually the the bad uh, manifestation of it. That leads to depression and has to be managed. Mm -hmm. Solitude is the one that we want to promote and foster. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we need to make sure is that we stay in the healthy uh, aspect of being by oneself. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, we can also feel isolated in a group.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, if we don't feel that we're part of the bigger group, we can still feel isolated.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: that's also a lesson for designers that design these uh, bossing environments. But if that person does not feel part of that cohort or that group, can feel isolated. But Signpost 5 also recognizes that as individuals, we also for our own health need to socialize, Mm -hmm. but also for the health of the idea. You mentioned that example. Mm -hmm. There was also another example um, done by a professor in MIT as well, uh, that he compared the financial return of people that invested in uh, stock based just on their own ideas without listening to anyone. Mm -hmm. Other ones that copy everyone else, like Mm -hmm. the echo chamber, and other ones that have a good balance. Mm -hmm. And the group that that had a good balance between their own ideas and that of others outperform Mm -hmm. the one in echo chamber Mm -hmm. and the ones that complete in isolation. Yep. There's another fascinating study that I talk about in the book about the prohibition of alcohol in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So when there was the prohibition, uh, a lot of the ideas generated at bars. Mm-hmm. When that happened, some of the um, uh, ideas started to dry out, <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> what happened after, after that, there is uh, fascinating research. I cited there if you are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, what they observed is... People started to reconfigure the social network mm-hmm. and start to uh, interact with people that they didn't interact before. And so the patents that came after that mm-hmm. follow a different direction. Mm-hmm. So the idea of innovation that now I talk to someone that I haven't talked before mm-hmm. gives the opportunity to take um, the innovation into a new uh uh, field. So that's the balance. Yeah.
0: So it, it's similar to like 19th century coffee houses in, in Europe which were famous because coffee was a new thing. Prior to coffee it was gin so everyone was pissed all the time but when these coffee houses came about that's where like philosophers scientists all of them kind of got together and exchanged ideas and that gave rise to a whole to the enlightenment and all sorts of you know like technological innovations. So Maybe what I'm not getting is where do we find the balance between aloneness uh, and. And that's the thing, we, we don't like nuance. And
1: mm-hmm. one example that illustrates this is the sit to stand debate. I don't know if you guys remember this, but again, a few years back, there was this, everyone was talking about the, how much time we should be sitting down, how much time we should be standing up, because mm-hmm. uh, there was this paper written, Sitting is the new smoking. And eventually they realized that it was standing up for prolonged time is as bad as sitting down for prolonged time. So the, uh, the recommendation is the, the best position is the next one. Mm. So if you're sitting down, standing up, and standing up, sitting down. Mm-hmm. What we need to be aware is that it's in the nuance, it's, it's in the balance of things, but people rather mm. have a, a blank statement, stand up
0: mm.
1: or sit down. Mm. Where things get more difficult is, for how long, yep. when, with mm. settings. Mm. So, I think what we need to learn. I'm not saying ne- let never exchange ideas before. Um, the book, the ideas in this book, are starting to grow because mm-hmm. of the uh, o- o- of the conversations that I have. But they have been in isolation for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the years that I took me to do the. Uh, the walk plus the incubation of the idea plus the writing of the book and but now they're starting to take its new this new path so
2: mm-hmm.
1: i just think again let's incubate them for a little bit it could be years mm. <laughs> could be months or perhaps an hour or a day you sit on it yeah uh, don't just uh, mm.
0: so we can agree that brainstorming sessions are a waste of time
1: well, the Adrian mm-hmm. Fuller, I think or I don't want to misquote uh, his name, but he says that it's, again. It's here is referenced. Um, he says that research unequivocally, mm. without doubt, mm. suggests that the same number of people working alone mm. come to better ideas than the same number of people working together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this book called Quiet, written yes. by Susan Kane. Mm-hmm. She put together a very interesting argument that's saying that perhaps the need to be together is more a social and bond and glue uh, than the outcomes that come out of it. Mm-hmm. And that on its own should be a good thing. Uh, we don't need to justify or put a dollar value for people gathering mm-hmm. if, if it gives them well being and sense of purpose and meaning and so on let's do it even if nothing uh you know no innovation comes out of it mm. um, before starting this i had the opportunity to uh, work in a place called hofis mm-hmm. i think it has died out but uh, how hofis work was that um it was a reaction to the movement of co-working that co-working started with something with strong purpose but then became a real estate solution for mm-hmm. Overflowing organizations, and um, and so these guys say, "Well, let's open our house, you know, for people, and you can come and work from our house." So I registered to one of these uh, events. So went there, rang, and uh, very welcoming. They say, "Welcome, here it is." They point to the. Uh, to the dining table, that's where we were gonna be working. Mm. And they showed me around the house, the bathroom. And the bathroom was, you know, the, the towel was still hanging there from that morning's mm. uh, shower and so on. It was a very domestic environment, which mm. contrasts with what we perceive to be corporate environments. And then um, they had a, a balcony where we we're gonna take phone calls, if you're gonna make all the zoning happening. And I was there to do meetings uh, and interviews with people that was, were working there. And then she opened the um, one room and said, here, you can do your meetings here. And it was her bedroom. Mm. (laughs) And it was a bit intimidating doing the meetings in a bedroom. Mm. So um, it it, it talks about the the rules of engagement and how we interact with space. Mm. We actually end up going to a coffee shop and do the interviews there. But... Everyone that went to that session, on that day at least, they were working on their own. They were mm. not working in a office environment because they were collaborating, because they needed to deliver a project. They were there because they wanted to work amongst others, to be mm. together
0: alone. Mm. Uh, I think just touching on the book Quiet again, I think uh, Susan Cain's point was that a lot of what we do in the workplace uh, kind of catered towards the more extroverted of us and the introverted of among us feel either distressed or left out or you know absolutely and that goes
1: the workplace as a whole, you Mm -hmm. know, but also how the the meetings. We also design meetings that people that can articulate their point better or more vocal about it. Mm. uh, Perhaps push an agenda that someone in the corner might not be able to so yeah it's and that's when i talk about design work first and then the workplace yes because if we take this into account as she quantifies 50 percent of the population Mm. uh, are in the other side um, then we can design better work environments Mm -hmm. in in its policies and its uh, physical container
0: Mm. Another thing you talk about in the book, and, and I think also something that you felt physically while doing the pilgrimage is this notion of adversity uh, and how, how that kind of leads to ideas and insights and maybe it could be you maybe stretching yourself and discovering new things about yourself. C- can you speak a little about adversity? So yeah, I, um, I decided to do the walk in
1: winter to manage um, two of my biggest risks. One was uh, fires, mm-hmm. and the other one were, were snakes. So I thought, well, if, if I do it in, uh, in winter, I'd manage those two. I only saw uh, one live snake. But again, I have a collection of uh, pictures here of rubbish that looks like snakes. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> it's equally scary. Uh, yeah. yeah. So at least I have uh, so many. Mm-hmm. But, um, I was freezing. Mm. So, okay, I mitigate that risk, but I was freezing. Uh, I was freezing, I was cold, I was hungry. I was hungry even while I was eating, (laughs) which I thought it was impossible. But, uh, uh, and all the type of discomforts that you can think of, I felt alone. Mm. All the things I I experienced, Mm -hmm. the uncertainty of where I'm gonna sleep, But with all those uh, adversities came learnings. Mm -hmm. And I almost can guarantee you, without personally not knowing you yet, but that you will have come with uh, situations that were adverse to you. Mm -hmm. But because of that adversity, you became a better person, Mm -hmm. or you find uh, more meaning or a solution to something. And philosophy, uh, Matt mentioned before that some... Talk about the Nietzsche, you know, they remind mm-hmm. us of the risks of uh, creating a society that is such adverse to to uh, to, to adversities. That cre- we're creating a, a person that has lost hope and mm-hmm. risk and and adventure, and and we're translating that to the workplace. And mm-hmm. I think the outcomes in the workplace are, inherit that. Mm-hmm. There's this quote. That I cannot mention in the book. That says from the movie, the third man from uh, Orson Welles reminds us that, that. Yeah. <laughs> that. you know, for 50 years during the Borgias in Italy, there was bloodshed and chaos, people killing each other, and gave us the Renaissance, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, and so on. And for 500 years of democracy in Switzerland, stability, everybody loving each other, and they gave us the cuckoo clock. Mm. So, <laughs> if we intuitively and personally know that adversity has some um, attributes that allow us to innovate, why we're so adverse? And I know why mm-hmm. we're adverse to it, to adversity, is because mm. it's adverse. Mm. So, one of the things, so signpost four mm. is that we should uh, keep or introduce adversities in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And some signposts are easy to follow than other ones. <laughs> yep. This one is very difficult mm. because design especially is genetically engineered mm. to um, r- get rid of adversities. Mm. In a way, it's part of its purpose. So when you design something, is to make it more usable, frictionless design and so on. So how do you use now design to r- bring back, b- back uh, Friction. So when I came back and, and then I had all these um, signposts pointing to different places,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or at least it seemed to be pointing to different places, I tried to follow them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you're telling me signpost one, this signpost two, all the way to 34, where do they lead us? Mm-hmm. And I follow them again in this scale of uh, pilgrimage Months, six mm. months following them, and I could not reach them, mm. and um, and it was an interesting point to reach because I, I thought I could not get closer, but I could not get away from them.
2: Mm.
1: I could not uh, find the answers, but I could not get rid of the questions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. And I didn't want the book to be like an inspirational type of book. Yeah, let's promote absurdity in the workplace and this and that and good luck and see you. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you should. (laughs) So I have a chapter called Laying Paths, which Mm -hmm. is following. I talk about my experience of following signposts, which I invite everybody to lay their own way. But I also take you to what I have learned so far. And there's a beauty thing about knowledge that despite being invisible it can be mapped Mm -hmm. so i did a knowledge map about adversity in the workplace and how adversity travels in organizations Mm -hmm. and it travels through um, intangible and tangible environments tangible environments is what usually designers deal with Mm -hmm. temperature illumination uh, factors of the physical environment and mm-hmm. intangible environments are organizational culture and so on. Mm-hmm. And you can see the, the, the map is here um, and we go through different regions in, in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I like about that is that the region of intangible environments is a lot bigger than the one in tangibles. Mm-hmm. So, that region is from research that comes from management and leadership and so on. And there's a paper that I came across that tries to predict um, scientific creativity Mm -hmm. by three factors. Work practices, collaboration and adversity. Mm -hmm. So, straight out of the bat, they position adversity alongside the uh, darling of contemporary workplace design collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I let you read their paper and the book to see what happens there, Mm -hmm. but at least they ask the question Mm -hmm. if adversity can be a predictor of creativity in scientific endeavors. Mm -hmm. In design we don't tend to ask that. Mm -hmm. There's some fringe studies that people in in cold environments are more productive. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But productivity and innovation are different. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: How fast can you type? because you're shivering or, or doing <laughs> something, activity is different of the quality of the idea.
0: Hmm. I, I think that signpost especially would be tough to implement because there's a, I think, a fine balance between adversity in the workplace and toxicity. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, working in big organizations are, you know, hopefully not too familiar, but some of us are familiar with toxic work environments so how, how do you see the balance between so, that so
1: we need to differentiate uh, adversity that is should not be toxic and mm. um, some people i interview some people when i couldn't find the um, my way out of following samples, i interview mm. people and people told me well you shouldn't make more adverse for females to get promoted in the workplace so mm-hmm. no mm. adversity should not never be used to exclude. One of the few instances of design that I came across that actually actively use adversity is to exclude people. It's mm-hmm. called hostile design. Mm-hmm. And we're more familiar with it than we we should. And you, I'm pretty sure you're all familiar with it. If you go to a, a bench in a park, you will see there's a armrest in the middle. That's not for, well, it's for you to put your uh, arm, but it's usually to prevent People to lay uh, homeless uh, people do homeless people do yeah. and like that they put mm. spikes and, so it's called hostage design to prevent some behavior so mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that type of design mm-hmm. what I'm suggesting is the type of design that promotes uh, um, so there are two ways mm. one from the there's a um, body of knowledge uh, called m- man uh, in interactions with the environment person um, interaction with the environment what that suggests and looks into the level of adaptation that the mm-hmm. person has with the environment so it argues that we traditionally are we in a level of adaptation right now the moment you f- forget about the environment is because you have adapted to it
2: mm-hmm.
1: once there is a stimulus then you become aware of the environment and then you try to match it so th- What I'm putting forward is to create an environment that increases the demand from the person Mm -hmm. in just the right amount, so that people can actually reach that, because if it's higher than that, then it breaks Mm -hmm. the person. So you can constantly um, be in constant adaptation Mm -hmm. and with learning processes in the environment. The other one comes from um, the intangible environments and it comes from a concept called organizational slack
2: mm-hmm.
1: and initially the assumption was that organizations with a lot of slack a lot of resources by people economic or time mm-hmm. were better positioned to innovate mm-hmm. so if you were ibm or google or whatever you, you know you you have so much money and resources mm-hmm. that you are better positioned to innovate than others mm-hmm. then research started to suggest that actually the little ones the small ones the ones with less resources mm-hmm. they think harder and more creatively about how to use the resources mm-hmm. and were better positioned to innovate
2: mm-hmm.
1: now the the current uh thinking is that actually too much slack can create different beha- behaviors that are be- people don't take it into advantage and uh, conduce to the early termination of an organization, mm-hmm. where and no Slack at all mm. doesn't allow people to think. So there's, again, yep. th- that sweet spot in the middle that is so difficult to strive. How much of Slack is the mm. optimal?
0: Yeah, and I think that's, I suppose, Silicon Valley lore, almost, of you know a startup coming up in a garage and then taking over the world. Um, just to go back also to... Something that you said and you you mentioned quite strongly in the book is that, uh, and maybe you know going back to one of the previous questions of what is the role of an architect, and really that an architect should really look at the design of work rather than the workplace. Uh, one distinction you make in the book is that we now kind of work in there's a there's a difference between doing work and doing tasks, and that now a lot of our work environments are really task environments. You, yeah,
1: yeah, so finished the uh, walk to Sydney, mm-hmm. came back, things happen, it's there, but then COVID hit, right? And with COVID, many things happened, we all know. But one of those things was that our life became more digital.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was looking at my Instagram feed and I came across a company that was offering a virtual pilgrimage. So you could do El Camino in Santiago, walking wherever it is that you walk. I'm pretty sure you have done this, perhaps, that pretty much you count your steps and then you put it into a website and then they map your progress on on the map. So I registered to do El Camino de Santiago online and I was just walking around my house, uh, putting there, And I talk about that in the book, because that allows me to deconstruct Mm. the pilgrimage from its walk. Mm -hmm. Can you walk somewhere, and the pilgrimage happens somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And that set the foundation to deconstruct work from tasks. Mm -hmm. And the analogy between a pilgrimage and its walk, it's very similar to task and work. So task is how you progress work. Mm but what gives you purpose meaning is work itself mm-hmm. task is the activities that you do mm-hmm. and now that the workplace is questioning its purpose mm-hmm. it's because perhaps it's uh, more like a task place mm-hmm. i then as part of this process i then look back into what i carried to sydney in my two backpacks and I realized that 99% of the things I took were to help me progress the walk. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, warm clothes, beanie, uh, shoes, um, uh, boots, uh, any things that will help me progress, sleep and so on. Mm-hmm. I just took two things that helped me with my pilgrimage, mm-hmm. which were a book and a pen, an and a notebook, and, and a pen mm-hmm. to write my thoughts. So I, think that we can also unpack our workplaces and that's an activity that i invite the reader
2: mm-hmm.
1: think about your workplace as um as a backpack or start unpacking what items there help you to do tasks and which ones help you to do work mm-hmm. and this is very uh, subjective because for you might be something that is gives you a sense of purpose like meaning Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not that a one answer fits all, but uh, uh, so I think to reclaim the purpose of the workplace, it needs to become that, Mm -hmm. spaces where people find purpose and meaning Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and not task places. Yeah,
0: and I think, uh, uh, well a figure that features quite significantly in the book is the, the, uh, the the myth of Sisyphus, and and I think that's where you when you get too caught up in tasks, it's uh, I mean if you can explain the myth of Sisyphus and how that relates to to what we were talking about. Yeah. So when I was um, planning the, the the walk,
1: I frame it around the idea of Sisyphus. You know, uh, from the Greek gods that uh, he was punished to push a big boulder up a mountain just for that to come back and do that for a. Eternity, so I thought that was a good analogy for my pilgrimage. You know, mm. just putting one step in front of another for what seemed to me to be an eternity. Mm. Um, how do you find purpose and meaning in that? Mm. And so I called my pilgrimage Sisyphus: goes to Sydney, mm. and um, that analogy it tends to work. Tasks that we can do at work, mm. and also. Um, so life as a whole. Uh, I also talk about the role of gamification Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and how this push of efficiencies has stripped meaning out of tasks. So Mm -hmm. we have created such effective tasks. Uh, It started from uh, Max Weber, the German economist that look at decontrasting tasks to see how we can be more efficient. And in doing so, remove purpose out of it mm. so now we're r- using gamification and other things to bring purpose back to activities mm. that we have uh, stripped them naked through optimization
0: mm. uh, and so so one route i suppose to to meaningful work which this podcast is about from from what i'm understanding is this distinction between tasks and work and that we should really focus on, like you said, the the backpack, like what's in the backpack that really progresses the work that we do rather than just these tasks.
1: Absolutely. And because the last signpost that I talk about, 34, Mm. is that in a workplace with only tasks to do Mm. and no work, no workplace will suffice. You know, if we only there to, you know, part of the conveyor belt, hmm. no, no, no um, workplace will suffice.
0: Um, does it matter where we work for, for work to be meaningful? It's funny you mention that because that's a
1: question that I started writing the book with. Uh, hmm. I again, a lot of this book happened during the pandemic and I was looking uh, watching one uh, speech from the prime minister telling us how we're gonna get a uh, move forward from the pandemic and he was talking about um which prime minister scott morrison oh <laughs> i was trying not to say it. <laughs> okay.
0: catch out of the bag now anyway,
1: yeah uh, but mm-hmm. so he was saying how we were gonna do this uh, get out of of the pandemic and he talked about an experience before he joined, he was a, a prime minister and he was visiting a New Zealand uh, yacht club. Uh, mm. They were defending their America's Cup uh, winning. So he went there and you know, the yacht club, the uh, America's Cup, it's very prestigious mm. and millions of dollars. And, and he was making the comment of how surprised he was, how bad their offices were. You know, the, the tables were scraft, uh, scratched, tables, the chairs were not great, and the whole office were not what you were expected mm. to, to look like uh, for the American Scope. And, and then the, the guy said, well, in Team New Zealand, we only ask one question. What makes the boat go faster? Mm-hmm. And then I talk about in the book why that story made me think about, well, does it really matter where we work? Mm. What actually makes the boat go faster? Uh, because they actually won. New Zealand uh, re- uh, re- kept their, um, their, um, their title, so mm. didn't, the offices didn't make this, uh, the boat go faster. So does it matter where we work? I started mm. writing this book with that in mind. And uh, now I have 34 reasons why I think it matters where we work, Mm. but perhaps they're not the traditional reasons why we think it matters.
0: Mm. Or maybe, I suppose, a more specific question that's, uh, I think, uh, in the times, that caters to the times we live in, uh, do we need to be in an office to find meaning in the work that we do?
1: We need to be in a workplace, not in an office. Okay. we're always in a workplace when we work even if that's at home Mm. uh again another chapter in the book talks about the the workplace doesn't disappear when you don't go to your office if anything the workplace has uh, atomized Mm. now everywhere you work is your workplace Mm. and for far too long we have overlooked the workplace the the home as a legitimate uh, environment to work funny enough in the history of work, mm. home was hosted work first than the office. Mm. <laughs> People used to work first from home and then they moved to offices.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now working from home is actually going back <laughs> in a way to what where things were.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we're quickly running out of time, so this will be the last question, which is usually the question I end the podcast with. and. This podcast is called On Meaningful Work. So what does the term on meaningful work mean to you? That's a beautiful question, but also it talks
1: about this problem. For me, it's like saying wet water. Hmm. The fact that you have to think about meaningful work means that we're doing tasks. Hmm. Um, Work in itself is or should be meaningful. Hmm. That's how we build sense of identity, so uh, belonging and so on the fact that that is not the case is Mm -hmm. a sign of our times
0: cool well thank you so much gus really appreciate this is you know your second appearance with dbn and it's always been an amazing treat chatting with you so thank you so much thank you all thank Thank you you. and yeah please (laughs) and before we break i just want to say a huge thank you to i think firstly folio for partnering with this event, it's been it's been an amazing collaboration. Hopefully, we can do it in the future. Uh, to Dan, the man, for taking care of the audio and video, and, and uh, for those of you who saw the the trailer to this event, knows know what a great job he's done. Uh, to Kai, to, for illustrating the beautiful image for the event, thank you for that. And finally, to uh, Stone and Chalk for really. Uh, hosting us and uh, making us feel at home here tonight. So, thank you all, and yeah, thank you for coming, everyone. Now let's get some vino. Let's do it.